Guys, I'm going to start a brand new series today called Sacred Spaces. Say it with me. Sacred Spaces. Uh, because not all space is the same. Uh, curious question. Do you think all spaces are the same or are there special spaces? Yeah, there's special spaces. If I, if I came over to your house, or let's just say somebody came to your door, and this is an acquaintance that you knew, but you didn't invite over to your house, and they knocked on your door. Have you ever had that happen before? Somebody comes over to your house, bust up on you, and just, hey, I was in the neighborhood. You weren't dressed all the way. Your hair's a little messed up, and you're like, good, glad you came by. It was awesome, you know? Maybe not so much. And then they were like, hey, it's a little cold outside. Do you mind if I come in for a second? Well, if you're, somebody said, no, you got to be hospitable, man. This is a Christian characteristic. You got to let people in. So, so let's just say you let them into your, to your little front space there and, and they're standing there and you could tell that they start, they start taking off their jacket and they're like, they're not here just for a quick hello. They want to hang out. So, so then they're like, Hey, do you mind? I'm tired of standing up. Do you mind if we get a seat? You're like, sure, sure. Okay. Yeah. And you go and you clean stuff out of your living room. I know, you know, you got some stuff piled up in there and you got to take care of it and you move it around and get, get a little space. And then they sit down. Uh, let's just say you got up to go fix them something and, uh, and, and you look around and they've opened your refrigerator and they start digging in, <laughs> digging in some drawers and stuff. And you're like, hold on, man. You know, like this is different than the front porch. Now we're in the refrigerator and we're getting a little bit more special and a little bit more sacred. Uh, but let's just say you, you, you went to the restroom and you came back in the living room and they're gone. You're like, oh, they, they left the house, but then you hear them from, from inside the master bedroom. They, they wanted to explore. So you, so you go and you walk into the master bedroom. You're like, hey, uh, you know, this is uh, kind of off boundaries and, and things start to tense up. And then what if they walked into the master bathroom and... And they're in the master bed. Now you're in the inner sanctum. You're in the inner chamber. They're digging through your makeup. They're like looking at your toothbrush. They see your toilet. They're like, like man, you have, you have invaded my space. It's different than the front porch. So we understand that there are some places that are like off limits and, and, and off boundaries. Uh, and then there's places that are special to us and are less seen by other people because of their sacredness. And I... I there's a couple of principles that through this series I want you to realize is that not all spaces are created equal. And you may say, well, you know, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof and every place is the same. But if you ever get the opportunity to go to Israel, you realize, first of all, this is a special place because a lot has happened here. Uh, you actually see where Jesus walked. You go to the Sea of Galilee and see where he walked on water. You know, you realize this is a little bit elevated and, and just, it, it's special. You go to Jerusalem and you realize this is where the king will set up his kingdom. This is where Jesus will rule and reign. But maybe you have the opportunity to go into a place like the garden tomb. And you know, it's, people have opinions about where the tomb is that Jesus resurrected, but there's a little place called the garden tomb and it was discovered a few decades back. Uh, and it's right outside of the city gates, which is where Jesus would have been buried. And right now, there's a little bus station that's right next to it, uh, but it's a, a secret garden, and a wealthy person would have owned this garden and this grave site, and there's a little uh, tomb, and many people believe that this garden tomb was the place where Jesus was laid. It fits all of the descriptions. 
And Angie and I went, and there's also another place called the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, and between these two places, they believe Jesus was buried. But we walked up in the garden tomb, and I remember getting underneath, I swung my head underneath the door, and when I walked in the space, whether Jesus was there or not, I know this, I felt like this is not normal. I wasn't about to break out some cards and play Uno in this place. I realized this is a little bit different. And so spaces are special. I believe that even though this is a building, we make it holy because of our assembly here. And when we're here, this is a sacred space because God's people are in the house. But although spaces can be sacred, time can be, space, can be sacred. Not all times are the same. It's why we would set apart time on a Sunday to come together on the Lord's day to, to be together because it's, hey, we're gonna set one day aside and call it holy, call it sacred. Uh, God taught the people of Israel in the wilderness that they were gonna celebrate three festivals and one of them, the festival of unleavened bread, seven days of celebrating how God rescued them out of Israel. He said, that's a holy festival. There's a day that the Jewish people celebrate called Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is where the priest takes the blood of the sacrifice and he actually brings it from the outer court through the inner court and all the way into the Holy of Holies and he puts the blood on the mercy seat only once a year. And you talk about special. Nobody in Israel out of millions of people are ever able to go into that inner sanctum into the Holy of Holies, but this priest is able. He is set apart. So God sets people apart, places apart, times apart. And this guy goes into the Holy of Holies and he has to wear a rope around his leg because if he goes in wrong, he may fall down dead. And they have to be able to pull him out of the sanctuary. So privileged, but also scary. So not all times are the same, not all places are the same. And here's what I wanna set up over the next three weeks. We're going into a season that is sacred. As a church, we're seeking God. And I wanna encourage you to set it apart. Over the next week, we're gonna be right back here next Sunday, but a lot's gonna transpire between right now and next Sunday. This house is gonna be filled with prayer every day and night. We're gonna be seeking God together. And so I wanna encourage you to set yourself apart and make yourself a sacred space. But what we're gonna do is use the tabernacle as a visual for understanding this, this principle of sacred space. If you have read anything about the tabernacle, there were three parts of the tabernacle. There was the outside area, which was called the courtyard, the outer courts. Then there was the inner place, which was kind of like a foyer to the Holy of Holies. And then there was the Holy of Holies. This week, I'm gonna speak on the outer court. Next week, I'm gonna speak on the inner court. And then the third week, I'm gonna speak on the Holy of Holies. And it's gonna bless you. It's gonna inspire you, draw you closer to the Lord. But let's turn our attention to the scripture. This is Exodus chapter 25. And we're also gonna read a portion from chapter 29 and read verses 44 through 46. The scriptures say, have the people of Israel build me a holy sanctuary. Now, I want to read this line, and then we're going to all read it together. So I can live among them. All right, I'm going to read that verse again, and I want us to all say that, that final phrase together. Have the people of Israel build me a holy sanctuary so I can live among them. Why does God want us to have a sanctuary? So he can live among us. God wants to be with us. What an incredible truth. 
Verse nine, you must build this tabernacle and its furnishings exactly according to the pattern I will show you. And then skipping to chapter 29 and verse 44, it says, yes, I will consecrate the tabernacle and the altar. I will consecrate Aaron and his sons to serve me as priests. Verse 45, and we see it again. Then I will live among the people of Israel and be their God. And they will know that I am the Lord their God. I'm the one who brought them out of the land of Egypt so that I could live among them. I am the Lord, their God. What an incredible truth to know that our God wants to dwell with us. If you look across the earth in the major religions of the world, Hinduism, uh, Islam, Taoism, Confucianism, or Confucianism, there's no other religion where the God actually wants to dwell with people. In Greek mythology, gods lived on Mount Olympus, and gods never came to men. But we see in our God the desire to be with us, to dwell with us. What an amazing truth that God wants to be close to us. All the way back in Genesis with Adam, the Bible says that God would walk with Adam in the cool of the day. God desires fellowship. God desires intimacy, and he wants to be close to us. When you see the tabernacle, when you see the image of the tabernacle, what you see there is God desiring to dwell with people. God moving into our neighborhood. So in 2014, I have a memory that sticks out with me. We, my wife and I had just sold a home and we, we had two kids at the time and we moved onto a street in Baker where my parents were living, Oak Bend Drive. And that is where I was raised, Oak Bend Drive in Baker, Louisiana, 70714. Woo! <laughs> and so there was a, a season of a few months where we moved onto the same street that my parents live. And boy, what a joy it is if, if you have kids and, and they move onto your street and, and, and they get close. Or some of y'all said, no, it ain't a joy. <laughs> But if you have a good relationship, it's a great thing to be, to be close to, to family in that way. I have a vivid memory that, that years later, I, I still look back and I recall, it was a July the 4th one day. And uh, we had been years not being in the same area as my parents, but July the 4th, uh, my parents were doing some hamburgers and hot dogs at their house. And our, and our home where we were staying, Angie and I were staying, was just a few houses down. And we felt safe enough for, to allow the girls to run down to their, to their grandmother's house. And so I'll never forget what it looked like as those two little girls got on the street and they ran down there to their mom's house. And this, you can't do this if they're across town, but you can do this if they're close by. And so as I was preparing for this message, that memory came up to me and, and I found those pictures, okay? So I brought them, I brought them with me today to church, okay? On the right, you can see Evie and Andy. Uh, and then on the left, I took a picture behind them as they were walking down to their grandparents' house. And uh, so, so, so cool. It sticks out to me as just a cornerstone memory. And I think about the joy of my mom and dad as their little grandkids ran to their house. That's like, does life get any better than that? It doesn't get any better than that. And that's because they wanna be close. And I want you to know this about your father, your creator, is that he actually desires to be close. It's the greatest joy of his life when you want to be close to him. 
And most, most of our lives, we spend away from God. We spend focused on our work, on our hobbies, on our lives. Our lives are busy. But I believe that the heart of God is that we would be close to him. He wants us close. No other religion does the God of that religion want to be close to his people. And you have to believe this is that God doesn't want to be far away from you. He's not mad at you or angry at you and say, I just don't want to have anything to do with you. He actually desires to be real close. And the tabernacle is proof of this fact. I hear some people preach out of the Old Testament, specifically the Torah. And they love to focus on the, the really hard passages where bad things happened. Like and the ground opened up and swallowed them whole and snakes came out and bit them. And, you know, and, and there's some gnarly stuff in there. But if you look at the overall picture and read between the lines, what is God saying by saying, build me a tabernacle? He's saying, I want to be right up in the middle. So in those days, and, and, and as nomadic tribes moved around, the king would always be in the center of the people. They would put his tent in the middle of all the people. And this was for his protection but it also was a statement that he's the most valuable and he's at the center of life here. And when God told them to build a tabernacle, he told them to place it at the center. It was important these people had just gotten rescued out of slavery and they were becoming a nation and Moses was not the king. Moses was just a leader. God was actually their king and he said, put my tent at the middle. Just pause real quick and Know this, that God didn't say, build me a house of gold. God wanted to be in a tent because everybody else was in a tent. Hey, check this out. This is so beautiful. John 1 says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Do you know the word dwelt there is tabernacled among us. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Jesus put on flesh just like Moses built a tent just like all the other people because he wanted to be one of them. Our God doesn't just want to be with us. He puts on flesh like us and walks with us. Such a relatable God. So, so amazing. But also the statement that they were to put him at the center. You know, you couldn't go anywhere without walking past God's house. If you wanted to go see your cousin across the way, you walked past God's house. You wanted to go buy something, you had to walk past God's house. And you know, I believe at the beginning of this year, I'm, I want to impress on your hearts that God wants to be close to you. He wants to draw you close. He wants to set up a tent, but he wants to be in the middle. He wants to be in the middle. We sing the song, Jesus be the center of it all. And I wonder what your world revolves around. Is the tabernacle in the corner? Is it on the side of the camp or is it in the center of the camp? Is God's presence in the center of your life? What an important word for us to put the presence of God, the tabernacle in the very center of our lives. I think this week is an opportunity for us to put the tabernacle at the center of our lives. I know there are ball games going on. There's stuff, stuff all kind of stuff. The world is engaged in all kind of stuff. I wonder what's at the center of your life. What's, what's in the very middle of your life? But as you would approach this tabernacle, it wasn't just a tent. There was actually a supernatural phenomenon that happened. There was a pillar of cloud that 
went from over the tent straight up into the sky. This had to be a sight to behold. Uh, it would be like a massive, I'm going to say a cloud name, cumulonimbus. But, but skinny and like a pillar, and it went all the way up into the heavens. Even on a clear day, there was the cloud. At nighttime, that cloud would turn into fire, and it would light up the entire area. Talk about a proof that this was the living God. And, and they lived under the shadow of this cloud. Now, here was the thing about the cloud, is the cloud actually showed them where to go. If they were to pick up all of their tents and say, hey, we want to go somewhere else. If they would have moved everything, the cloud would have stayed behind. But when the cloud started to move, they had to scramble to get everything packed up and follow the cloud. And God trained them that he is God and they are his sheep. And as we put the tabernacle back in the middle of our lives, I think it's important for us to know that God wants to lead us. He wants to be with us. He wants to be in the center. And he also wants to lead our decisions. You know, you can either be in charge of your life and take total control and make all your own decisions, or you can seek his will. You can allow him to lead you. I think in 2024, it would be an amazing goal for all of us to say, I want to follow the cloud. I want the cloud to be in the middle of my life. I don't want to pick up and go if the cloud is still there. But if I see the cloud begin to barely move, I'm going to pack up my stuff and I'm going to follow it wherever it goes. But one thing I'm not going to do is call all the shots in my life and say, I'm not following the cloud. God wants to train us that his cloud is what leads. I don't know who that's for today, but some of you are feeling hasty and jumpy and like you gotta, you gotta do something. You gotta, if you break down your tent and leave the cloud, the cloud will remain there. But if you just are patient and say, you know what? I'm under the shadow of the cloud. He leads by day and night. I'm okay as long as I'm by the cloud. The tabernacle trains us. Oh man, that's so rich and good, but you gotta follow the cloud. Amen. So that's the tabernacle. As you approach the tabernacle, I want you to imagine something, and I'm going to talk in uh, American terms here, but all of us are familiar with a football field, and most of us know what distance a football field is. I want you to imagine from the field goal all the way to the 50-yard line. That's about the dimensions of the tabernacle. It was much narrower, but that was about the length of the tabernacle, uh, not just the tent, but the entire courtyard. And the outer courtyard, if you walked past it, you could not see into the courtyard because imagine a seven-foot wall of linen curtains that surrounded this sacred space. And so although God was in the middle and he wanted to be close, there was this signal that something special is in here. And you would know right off the bat that I'm not just going to run straight into the Holy of Holies. I'm not just going to go straight to the ark. You would realize that although God wants to be here, there's a process of approach. And so as you, as you got closer to the tabernacle and you wanted to enter in, you would walk in, but the first thing that you would see was a 15-foot by 15-foot altar. 
This was large, looming. You had to have a ramp to get up to it. It was so big. Imagine a barbecue pit that was constantly filled with wood burning and people's animals being sacrificed on this altar. So this is sending a signal to us all. God wants to be close to us. He's in the middle of our camp. But when you walk in, we have a big problem. We have blood everywhere, dead animals everywhere, and we got a problem with God. So he wants to be close, but why do we have this place of sacrifice? And it's because we have fallen short of the glory of God. So although God wants to be close to us, we have a problem. Houston, we have a problem. We have this huge altar here, and this is a symbol that something needs to happen in order for us to be able to approach God. What would happen is you would bring your very best animal, and they would tie this animal to the horns of the altar, and there were different types of sacrifices, but it required blood to be shed for you to be called righteous. And these, these blood sacrifices weren't enough to, to even perpetually cleanse us. It only cleansed us for a season, but they would sacrifice something on the altar. And so as we approach God, we have to know, number one, he wants to be close to us, but number two, a sacrifice is required for us to be made righteous with God. What does this altar represent in today's world? You know, we came to church today, none of us bringing bulls and goats, thank God, no blood, no, no uh, screaming animals. I think we would have a problem with PETA. But as we come in, we don't see an altar anymore. What we see is a huge cross. Because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father unless by me. And although the blood of bulls and goats could not cleanse us in that sacrifice, there was a perfect sacrifice that was brought to that altar. And that altar became what we know now as Christians as the cross. It's impossible to approach a loving God without first coming to and through the door of the cross. Hey, everyone look up here. The cross has got to become central in your life as a Christian. As you approach God, you come to the cross, and there at the cross, you acknowledge, oh man, this is so good. You acknowledge that Jesus became your substitute and that he died because a sacrifice was necessary. I don't know if you look at yourself as perfect, but I just want to tell you, you're not, and you need a sacrifice. You need something that is going to make up for your shortcomings. And as you look at Jesus Christ on the cross, he became that for you. And it's why he deserves your loyalty and your praise and your worship is because he became the sacrifice that would cleanse your sins. And as you come to that altar, you acknowledge the sacrifice. What a priest would do when you brought your animal to them is he would, call, he would make you put your hand on the head of the animal as it was being killed. That said that I identify this animal as my sacrifice. And so when you come to Jesus, you can't just say, oh, yeah, he's the world's savior. No, he's your savior. He is your personal savior, and you need him. It's why you say, hey, Jesus, I need you. 
be my sacrifice, carry my sins, take my sins, and you give him your sins. You come to the altar. But you know what this altar also symbolizes? Jesus said, pick up your cross and follow me. Although that altar and that perfect sacrifice was him, he also invites us to surrender our lives as he surrendered his life and laid it down. So as we want to approach God, first we realize tabernacle, hey, it says God wants to be in our neighborhood. Let's love God. But we get there and we realize we have a problem. We must come to the cross. We must receive righteousness through the blood of Jesus Christ. And I, I want in 2024 for the cross to stay central in your life for the blood to be applied in your life over your family over your life you know the, israel had to put blood over their doorpost and the death angel passed over in the same way the blood of jesus has to be the banner over your life lord we plead the blood of jesus over our lives and over our families the blood cries out for us. Lord, I pray for forgiveness of sin for people that are here. Lord, there is no forgiveness of sin outside of the blood of Jesus, outside of the cross. There is no way to access God outside of this altar. Lord, let us come to the cross. Let us come to the altar and receive forgiveness in your name. Amen. There's one more thing that I want to add in this outer court is after you pass the altar and that sacrifice, there was one more article of furniture before you went inside, and it was called the laver. Our team has done a good job of putting together some images for you to kind of picture what, what this was all about. But the laver was a place of washing. Now, this is so key. Millions of Israelites only knew one article of the temple, and it was the altar. They came, they sacrificed, and they turned around and went out, and nobody got to go to this second step. Only the priests were able to go to this second step and begin to wash themselves. But through Jesus Christ, we don't have an upper echelon of priesthood and laity. Through Jesus Christ, we have all become a kingdom of priests. So once you now come to the altar and receive forgiveness, then your task is to move to the laver. The laver is a place we receive righteousness at the altar, but we receive holiness at the laver. I know that was going straight over a lot of people's heads. Righteousness means we're right with God. Holiness means we're being sanctified and purified. You get right at the altar, but you get pure at the laver. So how did they make the laver? Let's read how they made the laver. Exodus 38, verse 8. Bezalel made the bronze wash basin and its bronze stand from bronze mirrors donated by the women who served at the entrance of the tabernacle. <laughs> I wonder if they didn't have any mirrors anymore, you know? They couldn't even check themselves out anymore because they gave up their bronze mirrors. But this craftsman melted down their mirrors and created the laver because the laver was supposed to be a place of reflection, a place, and the priest would go, 
Uh, and I want to read how serious this process was. In chapter 30, verse 17, and the scriptures are on the screen. Then the Lord said to Moses, make a bronze wash basin with a bronze stand. Place it between the tabernacle and the altar and fill it with water. Aaron and his sons will wash their hands and feet there. They must wash with water whenever they go into the tabernacle to appear before the Lord. And when they approach the altar to burn up their special gifts to the Lord, watch this sentence, or they will die. So this God wants to be close to us, puts a tent in the middle of our camp, wants us to come and we walk in and there's blood everywhere and there's an there's a altar and then we got to cleanse our hands and our feet or otherwise we'll die. They must always wash their hands and feet or they will die. This is a permanent law for Aaron and his descendants to be observed from generation to generation. Say sacred spaces. Purity prepares us for presence. Purity prepares us for presence. As we enter into 2024, here, I have a question. This, hey, I want everybody, every campus right here. What's going on in your life? What's going on in your life? Are your hands dirty? Are your feet dirty? Where have you been? How do you get dirty feet? Walking in muddy places. Where have your hands been? Where have your feet been? Is it impossible to be made pure? No. We came to the altar. The cross pays for our sins, but we need to be washed. We need to be sanctified. Our hands need to be cleansed. As we start this year, I wonder if you're willing to get clean hands, clean feet, purify your walk, purify your life. We're moving into the next seven days and we're calling it a sacred space. This is a time for washing. This is a time we clean our hands and our feet. I find it interesting that this basin was made out of mirrors because it was a, a, the, the priest would peer in and would be able to see the reflection of his hands. How are we made pure? How are we made sanctified? If the, if the cross is what makes us righteous, how are we washed? The scriptures tell us that we're washed by the word. Jesus said, I have given you my word. It has washed you. 